Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 404 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is a Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT. We have AEW beginning its build for Revolution, its first pay-per-view of 2023, while NXT is trying to make a quick transition from Vengeance Day, its first premium live event of 2023, into Stand and Deliver on WrestleMania weekend. There is a lot to discuss from both brands this week, and I will tell you right off the top, while there's a lot of positives for both brands, there's a lot of negatives as well. So buckle in and get prepared for that. As we kick off every edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, allow me to remind you once again that this show is all about Defied. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, also leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read that review live right here on the podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for news analysis, episode drops, highlights, commentary all week long. We do it for you on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Further good news here in the world of Getting Over. I told you the new podcasting equipment is still coming in. We have a couple pieces that are outstanding. They're on back order. I'm waiting for them to arrive, but we got a new desk pad, a silent mouse, a number of other instruments that are allowing us to provide as high quality of an audio experience as we possibly can. Some of you, and when I say some, I mean like two, have actually given us feedback and said that it's a positive listening experience. You guys are noticing the changes. Well, I would love additional feedback, so feel free to email us gettingoverpod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us or DM us at gettingovercast on Twitter. Let us know if you're noticing the audio sounds better, if we're infiltrating your ear holes in a more clear manner. Uh, And also uh, let me know about features on the show that you may be interested in bringing on. You know, on, on this AEW NXT show, it's really cut and dry. We break down the episodes on WWE, obviously. We have the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and now the last word. That seems to be getting some positive reaction, but I wanna know what all of you, our listeners, our getting overheads, think about the product. So please, Send us those emails, gettingoverpod at gmail.com, and tweet us at gettingovercast. With that, let's go ahead and get into today's show. I actually had a difficulty deciding whether to go with AEW or NXT first. I was like, oh, do I want to make them a little mad or do I want to make them really mad? So for those of you who are just diehard AEW fans and don't like any criticism, let me preface by saying this episode may not be for you. There are a number of things beyond the major angle in AEW, which I think is going fantastically well with MJF and Brian Danielson. I have a couple hiccups there that I will discuss, but largely extremely strong angle. There's a lot of other stuff happening right now in AEW that is just not to my taste, at least. NXT, it's a little bit of a mixed bag as well. We're going to break it all down on today's show. A reminder before we get into all of it, we have timestamps in the episode descriptions. So if you come back to the show, having only listened to half, you want to jump into the second half. Uh, if you only listen to one brand or the other, you only watch one or the other, and that's all you care about, you can jump around if you so choose. Those timestamps are available 
As always, I hope you listen to the entire show. Let's kick things off this week with AEW. As always, we mix Rampage and Dynamite together, break them down together based on angle. This week, Rampage, folks, it was legitimately worthless, like a total slog to get through the entire show. Dynamite continued the trend that we have been discussing on this podcast over the last month in that there was legitimately tremendous wrestling on the show. There were three more matches that I graded four stars or better. And I think it's now been like three straight weeks where that's been the case, where there's been three matches per show that were like 3.75 or higher on my scale. But the booking and the storylines, holy shit, creative feels like it is in a total downward spiral outside of the main event angle. One or two weeks, you can call it an aberration. This is now a trend. Now, there's still plenty of time before Revolution, and I do think they will get back on track before the pay-per-view. But right now, some of this stuff on AEW television, for me, I'm the one you're listening to, for me, it's a bit of a struggle. So let's get to what happened across Dynamite and Rampage. On Rampage, Roosh fought Christopher Daniels. This was the main event of Rampage. Let me repeat that. Roosh against Christopher Daniels was the main event of Rampage. CD is 52. His last AEW TV match was July 2022. He hasn't won on AEW TV since April 2021, and he's main eventing Rampage. I don't know what to tell you, folks. Uh, Roosh got double knees up on best moonsault ever, and he hit bull's horns and got the win. This continued AEW's trend of giving MJF's henchmen wins on Rampage before they have dynamite matches. They did it with Brian Cage. They've done it with numerous other people. It's just like trite and eye-rolling. Roosh didn't need to have this match. We know he's great. We've seen him plenty on TV. Just have him ready to fight Danielson. On Dynamite, uh, we had MJF against Konosuke Takeshka. This was an eliminator match to open the show. Takeshka hit a brain buster and a great diving style frog splash. Then he reversed a tombstone pile driver and turned that into a deadlift German suplex. They traded huge spots. Takeshka escaped salt of the earth and hit a tope con hero. MJF kicked the middle rope into Takeshka's crotch, then caught him running for a powerbomb into the injured knee that MJF was selling all match. Takeshka used the opening to hit a blue thunderbomb and a V-trigger, but MJF's foot found the rope. Takeshka then missed a springboard senton on MJF. He pounced into Salt of the Earth with extra leverage and got the submission victory. After the bell, he punched Takeshka with the dynamite diamond ring. Takeshka immediately bladed before MJF punched him a few more times with Brian Danielson clearing the ring with a save. Now, this was a damn fine match and a great show opener. Four stars, A-. minus. MJF cheated twice, used the referee as a shield twice, and went after the white meat babyface after the finish. Good heel stuff all around, especially for a beloved young wrestler. He got a lot of heat out of it. Beyond that, I actually found this to be a really appropriate use of blading because they used it for impact, for shock value, rather than pure gore, which is what we get so often in AEW. The goal was to make MJF look like an even bigger piece of shit than he already is. Best of all, there was a reason for the match taking place. It played into Danielson's storyline, and there was a reason for the finish to go the way it did. The same cannot be said for many other things that happened over the last week in AEW. This was also a reminder that MJF is superb inside the squared circle. And it's a legitimate shame that he doesn't wrestle on TV more often. And of course, Takeshka is a top-tier performer still fresh on the scene in the United States. Even better than all of that, 
Both of these guys are 26, 27 years old and have another, you know, 10, 15 years left to do this if they both want. So the future is bright and they're two of the shining stars and we got to see a great match between them. Now, that said, later backstage, MJF was sweating shirtless on a pleather futon in a shitty locker room while ranting about being twisted. Then he told a story about getting road dome as a junior in high school when he hydroplaned in his blue Camaro, hit a telephone pole that almost killed the girl he was in the car with. And then he responded to that after waking up by dragging the girl into the driver's seat to avoid getting arrested. He said he was a scumbag and he was proud of it. And I just sat dumbfounded watching this. What the hell was this promo? Why was it necessary? We get it. MJF is a devil, a monster, a scumbag. We know this, man. We saw it in the post-match attack. We don't need him admitting to committing a felony for no reason after winning a match. Now, look, different strokes for different folks. I can appreciate that. Maybe some of you liked it. To me, it was so incredibly over the top. And why was he even mad in that moment? He won. He made the kid bleed and he ran away unscathed. Not only was the promo horrendous, it strained credulity to a significant degree. Let's please operate in some realm of reality. And then beyond that, to use the name Liv and insinuate that it was Liv Morgan in a story about getting dome in a car That's just classless, not wrestling, kayfabe classless, like real life classless. Beyond all of that, did you get a look at the world champion's private locker room? Dirty carpet, wires everywhere, no art plants, TV, anything. Compare that to how Roman Reigns is presented in his private locker rooms in WWE. MJF is not only AEW's world champion, he's a rich, wealthy world champion at that. A guy who, in kayfabe, is willing to spend $600,000 to pay Roosh to take out Brian Danielson, as they mentioned on the show. We joked last week that the amount of money in the briefcase he gave Roosh was absurd. And then they said on commentary, well, that looked like $100,000. I was like, yeah, it did look like $100,000. He's going to get five more of those briefcases. So MJF is willing to pay Roosh $600,000 Yet all AEW provides or all MJF's people bring is a single pleather futon that kids probably have in their college dorms. This isn't even a nitpick. It's about how you present your champion and maintaining the facade of his character. Could you imagine WWE cameras finding Ric Flair backstage and he's wearing sweats and Crocs instead of a suit and alligator shoes? Like, it would never, ever happen. AEW has to take these things into consideration. And if you think it's a nitpick, then you're not... You're being disingenuous. You are because this is important shit. If a guy's going to come out and say, I'm a rich, wealthy champion, I'm better than you, I'm a snob, I'm stick my nose up at all you and call people poors and call cities mid, then you can't have a locker room looking like that. It's just ridiculous. So, you know, you can call it a nitpick if you want, but it's not. It's legitimate. And AEW really, if they're going to go do a segment like that, you need to step it up and do something a little bit better. At a minimum, do what they had for the inner circle when they had that locker room with the leather couches and the water bottles and the refrigerator. At least make it look decent. Don't just throw someone in what looked like a converted closet into a makeshift locker room. Really bad look. So moving on from that, on Dynamite, we had Danielson against Roosh. 
in that scheduled match. Brian was being interviewed in the trainer's room before the match when suddenly the door slammed shut and sounded like it got bolted from the outside. Roosh entered the ring with MJF coming down to demand Aubrey Edwards, ring the bell, and start counting. Fans chanted, asshole, with MJF hysterically answering, no habla inglés. Literally, in time with Aubrey counting one, Brian just so happened to break through the door with Takeshka aiding his escape. Aubrey counted purposely slow, with Brian making it to the ring at like six and a half, and MJF went ahead and jumped on commentary. So the match began. Roosh went wild once Brian got inside, with Danielson getting busted open at some point. It may have been a blade, but I think it actually was a hard way. He ate an exploder off the apron, had a full crimson mask after commercial. Brian hit a tope suicida through the corner, and they traded high-impact strikes and moves in the ring. Roosh delivered a straightjacket pile driver. Brian then countered bull's horns with a psycho knee for a false finish. They traded a ton more blows and headbutts, with Danielson landing a second psycho knee to earn his title match officially against MJF at Revolution. MJF punched Brian with the ring a half dozen times after the bell. Then he added salt to the earth while ranting and selling the knee. And AEW went to commercial with three staffers trying to pull MJF off Brian. He was unable to release the hold. But not only when we came back from commercial did we not get resolution of it there, we didn't get resolution on it for the remainder of the show. So they kind of ended and went to commercial on like a really hot moment and just never referenced it again. Now, the match was a straight banger. The crowd put this over the top because while the work was great, it was not necessarily to the level of the reaction it received. As incredible as Roosh may be in the ring, and he is incredible in the ring, the guy just refuses to sell for shit. It's the only thing holding him back from being a top-tier performer. Brock Lesnar sold 10 times more for Brian than Roosh did, comparatively. But again, the match was superb. Pure strong-style brawling, some technical wrestling infused. Freaking fantastic match. 4.25 stars and an A. And the MJF post-match attack was great as well. And given this was coming later in the show, it's even more reason the locker room promo that preceded it was completely unnecessary. So sure, I had a couple reservations from this Wednesday night. But overall, it was great to see AEW push a storyline for the majority of an episode, which I'm sure was done to try and keep viewers engaged. They've seen ratings erode as shows go on recently. I bet it worked what they accomplished or what they tried to accomplish on Wednesday, and it definitely helped build the Revolution match as well. If they just cut out that locker room promo segment for all of its problems, from the story to the Liv Morgan stuff to the way the locker room looked, this would have been perfection achieved from a storytelling standpoint over the rest of the show. So on Rampage, there was a trios title match, the Elite defending against Ethan Page, Matt Hardy, and Isaiah Cassidy. And if you remember, they got this match just because they wanted it and approached them in the gym. Kenny Omega caught Page with a V-trigger to the back of the head. Nick Jackson ate a Canadian destroyer from Cassidy and twist of fate from Hardy for a broken fall. Hardy then accidentally hit Page on the apron. Cassidy caught Nick flying for a cutter. Then he ate V-trigger from behind, plus one winged angel and a triple BTE trigger. The wrestling was good, not great. This going on 16 minutes felt like forever, and needing two finishers to beat Isaiah Cassidy seems completely unnecessary, just like this match happening at all. So we'll go to the other trios match that actually had a reason for happening on Dynamite, the Elite defending against Top Flight and A.R. Fox. They won that battle royal and got the opportunity. We got the seated Spanish fly from Fox on Omega. Such a great spot. Fox is the reason Austin Theory does this, by the way. He helped train him. Uh, Matt did some cool but impossible double suplex while in a pinning combination for a triple pin attempt. 
Tagging mostly disappeared at this point. Fox did a springboard inverted cannonball outside as Top Flight hit a springboard assisted inverted DDT plus a 450 from Fox for a false finish that Omega was late to break. It was an absolutely insane sequence that I just described. Omega caught Fox on the top rope with an elevated Snapdragon suplex. Then the Elite hit a leapfrog melter driver and assisted springboard moonsault before Omega caught Fox with two V-triggers and a gut-wrench doctor bomb. Fox countered One-Winged Angel into a pinning combination with the duo countering back and forth until Omega finally ended the match with a crucifix pin of Fox. Tremendous bell to bell. Fox was the MVP of the match, and it's just a reminder, it's kind of shameful that he was not signed by a major promotion until age 35. The guy is an incredible in-ring talent. I went four stars A- minus for the match. More story and tagging was needed to take it higher than that for me, but the entertainment value was through the roof. Just six top athletes going at it for a really good length of time. So very entertaining and enjoyable match. On Rampage, Tony Storm and Soraya fought the Renegade Sisters. Storm hit the hip attack plus Storm Zero for the win in four minutes. After the bell, Storm and Soraya, who were mostly in black and silver, grabbed spray paint and put L's on the Renegade's stomachs. This was the only women's match, and the post-match didn't even get time to breathe, to get booze, nothing. Plus, there was zero reaction, so maybe that's why they cut it off. This was truly bad on Rampage. On Dynamite, Jamie Hayter uh, fought the Bunny in an Eliminator match. The bell rang here 22 minutes into the show, which was a pleasant surprise. They changed the segment of the show in which they did the women's match, and it only got a single commercial break instead of a double. So it started off on a positive note. Right after coming back from commercial, there was an awful botch on an exploder suplex, and the match ended immediately after that with Haterade. That was almost assuredly an audible to go straight to the finish after the botch. It's unfortunate because Bunny just came back off injury. She has a history of concussions. Not sure how long the match would have gone without the injury, but given AEW only puts one women's match on each show, we only got three minutes of like non-commercial wrestling here, which is just not great, Bob, especially when Rampage got four minutes, and in totality, you're talking about 10 minutes of women's wrestling over three hours of programming, basically, across the last week, which is just disappointing. Immediately after the match, Soraya and Storm congratulated Hader for winning, but said she's still a loser. Then they brought in Leva Bates and attacked her with a spray-painted L on her back. And seeing this back-to-back from Rampage of Dynamite, I'm just sitting here, I'm like, Is this really the fucking gimmick, like calling people losers with the L hand gesture and spray paint? Is it 1995? Like, holy shit, is this bad? Now, some seem to believe this is an attempt at replicating the outsiders, Hall and Nash with Storm and Soraya in those spots, given the colored gear and the spray paint. And fans are extrapolating that to assume a surprise third man, the Hulk Hogan, the Hollywood Hogan of the entire thing, will join them, with the possibility being that it's Mercedes Monet, or to a lesser degree, Ruby Soho. And sure, that's possible. If that's the play, Mercedes would get a hot reaction, obviously. But the story would still be an absolute eye roll and totally bastardized version of the NWO. So far, this is way more like a WWE Divas era version of it, at best. In fact, it's almost an exact replication of when the Bella Twins beat up Paige and covered her stomach with tanning spray because she was too pale while they were making fun of her and calling her a loser and stuff. A total head scratcher at this point. This is an L, not for a loser though, for lame. 
zero point zero. On Dynamite, we had a tag team championship match, the acclaimed defending against the guns. Backstage, Billy Gunn said they all decided he would stay backstage and not get involved. Caster infused some Spanish into his third bar, saying the guns have tiny balls. Extremely smart because it got a huge pop and El Paso has a large Spanish-speaking population. Uh, Bowen's rolling elbow was dodged with it nailing the referee. Austin grabbed a bell to drill Bowen, so Billy ran down, lifted Bowen's in a brief tease on a turn, but shoved them away to catch the belt shot cold. Colton then hit his father with the other belt from behind. The champions followed with the arrival and mic drop, but the referee wasn't there to cover. The referee had two slow counts for the acclaimed due to being injured, only for Bowens to eat a belt shot and get pinned despite a third slow count. The crowd response was like a light groan rather than actual heat. Now, when the music stopped, there was a light bullshit chant. The match also finished too early with time left in Dynamite, so the end dragged out. And production decided, hey, let's play the Acclaim's music, even though they just lost the titles. Look, folks, booking decisions are made every week in professional wrestling. Some good, some bad. And you bet your ass, this was a bad one. Now, this was done either for the guns to be transitional champions for FTR or for Acclaimed to win the titles back at Revolution. Either way, at least for me, it was lackluster and disappointing. The best part of the entire thing was the ref bump. Probably a top 25 ref bump of all time. And great continued selling by him on the pin attempts that followed. A second title win for Acclaimed is not a good enough reason for this booking. Continuing the FTR ass boys story for the title could have been accomplished with Acclaimed remaining champions. FTR pins ass boys in a triple threat. And then as good guys promises to defend against Acclaimed eventually only for Acclaimed to fall into another feud that takes precedence or finish their feud with the ass boys in the interim. Don't blame me for pointing this out. The crowd was silent in the finish. There is no reason to treat one of your most over acts like this as a means of either protection or storytelling. Look, I know this booking stuff isn't easy. Hey, this booking stuff isn't easy, you know. But we gotta do better than this. It was stupid and those defending this either because it was unexpected I mean, it wasn't really, not once it was in the main event, or because it's protecting the acclaimed. It did accomplish that, but really for no reason, as I already explained, you're really missing the point if that's the stance that you're taking. And really the only takeaway positive, aside from the referee, is they didn't do the daddy-ass turn for no reason. We did mention last week that it was a possibility based on the setup, and they did do a swerve, and that's positive that they tried to do something that you know was somewhat unexpected in terms of doing the title change without daddy ass factoring in. But once it got into the main event and once the referee bump took place, I mean, you saw this entire thing coming. And I just got to say, I just disagreed with the decision. As always, though, look, if the booking makes sense going forward, then I'll come back and say, hey, you know, in retrospect, good decision. I understand why they did it. But on the two potential playouts of this with FTR either winning the titles and continuing that feud or claimed winning them back, Neither of them, to me, is a good reason to take the championships off the acclaimed in a spot like that. On Dynamite, Samoa Joe in a promo package called Darby Allen a worthy adversary, unlike Wardlow. Joe promised to expose all of Wardlow's secrets if he went after him. Other than like the vague secrets being a really odd addition to the storyline, it was a typically strong promo from Joe, as per usual. On Dynamite, we had the Garcia Guevara gauntlet, whatever it was called, Ricky Starks against JAS. On Rampage, Stark said he may have put his foot in his mouth 
resulting in this match happening, but he was confident he'd get the job done and embarrass Chris Jericho. Starks beat Cool Hand with a spear in like a minute and then rolled up Daddy Magic in, I think, 15 seconds. Daniel Garcia entered only for Sammy Guevara to follow. That confused Starks. He ultimately fought Garcia. Starks speared Garcia on the apron when Jericho, who was wearing a silver luchador mask, hit him with Judas Effect out of the crowd. Garcia threw him inside and got the pin. Commentary played dumb for some reason to this being Jericho who tore off the mask and celebrated. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not trying to be negative on this show, but this was among the worst gauntlet matches I can remember. Legitimately nothing positive to take away from it. Starks didn't even get to show out by picking up some credible victories on the way to taking the screw job loss. If you're going to do this, then have him look good beating Daddy Magic and Cool Hand, then let him beat either Guevara or Garcia before ultimately losing to the other one. That's how you do it if you're going to book something like this. No one benefited from this at all. And by the way, where was Action Andretti seeing all of this happen with Ricky Starks getting beat down, no no one coming out to save him? I could say the same thing earlier about Brian Danielson getting his ass kicked. Where's the rest of the BCC? I know that they're not like totally a thing anymore in terms of like they're all together all the time, but you still have Claudio. Even if Mox isn't there, you have Wheeler Yuta as well. None of these guys have Brian Danielson's back. It's just extremely odd. But anyway, going back to this, literally the only way this could be worse is if Jericho somehow beats Starks at Revolution. But even now, just based on what we got on Dynamite. That is one big pile of shit. Best way to describe it. On Dynamite, the Impractical Jokers were backstage calling Jericho a diva from his appearance last season. They stole his bat and told Jericho to respond to the theft tomorrow during the premiere of their show. Like, what what the shit was this? If you're going to do a blatant promotional segment, that's fine. You got to do business. At least make it entertaining or the least bit worthwhile. This was completely dreadful. On Rampage, Swerve Strickland fought Brian Pillman Jr. Jim Ross called Parker Bordeaux a college football great during the match. This guy was like an okay player at UCF who left before graduation to try wrestling. He was hardly a college football great. Swerve took out Pillman's leg and hit the jump kick to the back of the head, but Pillman kicked out of that for no reason. Trench, which is the name of the third dude with the braids, distracted. Parker tripped Pillman on the apron where Swerve hit a Death Valley driver plus the coup de gras for the win. After the bell, the morons put their hoods up and took out Pillman before Dustin made the save with a weapon. I was immensely confused by this. And maybe I did miss something from a storytelling aspect and one of you can correct me. And I'll accept that if I, if I miss something. But the match happened because Swerve decided to go after second generation talent for no reason whatsoever. He just decided to do that. But the person that he challenged and was supposed to fight, Dustin Rhodes, had to pull out of the match. Except Dustin was there to make the save. And Swerve, who is a top-tier talent, couldn't beat Pillman, a low-carder, with his secondary finisher that is frequently used to end matches. Not only that, he needed interference from his peons to get the win over this guy. For me, none of this worked. Block at zero! I mean, please, bring Keith Lee back, get this story back on track for Revolution. Swerve has no momentum, and he has become ice-cold purely because of Mogul Affiliates and his booking. Not his fault. On Rampage, the Jeff Jarrett group and best friends with Danhausen 
got promo packages backstage. This is the first time that Denhausen actually has made me laugh, so I thought that was cool. But somehow this feud is still going over the Golden Globe three weeks later. House of Black had a video package where they basically said they were never trying to actually recruit Eddie Kingston. They just wanted to prove he was corruptible. It was so convoluted that Excalibur had to explain it when the package ended. Adam Cole cut the same video promo he's been cutting about fighting hard to return. It looks like he's about to come back as a white hot baby face. We saw the reaction that he got already when he made that return on Dynamite. So that's a positive, but really they need to kind of do something else besides the same vignette over and over again. And then on Dynamite, Stokely Hathaway blamed Hook for all the firm's problems. Hook came up behind him, wrenched his arm, and that was it. So I got nothing for you on these other than the continued frustration with the Kingston storyline. We will see where that goes. So as I said with AEW, there were some positives this week. The MJF Danielson storyline, huge positive, super entertaining, loved the way it was booked through the duration of the show. If they just cut out that backstage promo, it would have been perfect. That thing was an absolute disaster. Regarding what else is happening, you know, again, it's just a lot of stuff where you shake your head at it or you can poke holes in it pretty easily. And these aren't nitpicks. These are legitimate, you know, booking concerns and problems. Now we'll see, you know, as the road to revolution starts kicking into gear a little bit, if some of these are fixed and changed and improved upon. And I believe they will be because generally what happens with AEW is they go through a lull a few weeks before they actually do the build to their pay-per-view. They kick things into gear. They bring back all the big names and everything starts rolling pretty well. So surely John Moxley and Hangman Page, um, Adam Cole will probably end up getting an opponent for that show. The women will hopefully figure out what the hell they're doing. You know, I am still anticipating that Revolution is going to be a good show, but the booking across AEW right now, again, the match quality has been outstanding over the last month on Dynamite, but the booking really has left a lot to be desired. So with that, let's go ahead, move over to NXT. And NXT this week was a huge mixed bag as well. A lot of good mixed with some nonsensical storytelling that actually took away from otherwise solid booking. As you'll hear as we progress with this breakdown, the highs were not nearly as high as AEW, but the lows weren't nearly as low either. It just kind of existed in the plane between those extremes. So let's kick things off with the main event of NXT, Bailey hosting Ding Dong Hello with Toxic Attraction as her guest. And this being the main event told you right away something was going to happen because NXT almost always does matches in the main event unless there's like a major contract signing. So Bailey's left arm was in a sling. I guess she was selling the disarmor from Raw. Toxic entered together, but they were shown arriving to the arena separately and being cold to each other. They argued about losing the title match, who was to blame, and being able to survive without each other. Bailey played mediator and counselor as Toxic realized they've alienated the entire locker room and can only trust each other as sisters. That turned into Toxic wanting another title match but realizing they should focus on the WWE women's tag team titles, not the NXT women's tag team titles. And in that moment, I was pumped. I was like, this is great. They're going to turn on Bailey. They're going to go up to the main roster. They're going to get a feud, you know, quick. And then they'll probably, Damage Control will probably move on to Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler. But that's not what happened. Instead, Bailey got them to hug it out. All three celebrated, only for JC to turn around and super kick Gigi throw her into the ding-dong hello door, literally cracking the wood with her head, and then fully stomping on her face. Bailey jumped over the chair, shocked as Gigi cried, and JC celebrated to end the show. Now, this started as a bit of an eye roll because it seemed like such a plain, uneventful segment. At the end, 
it looked like they might double super kick Bailey, which would have been a really hot moment. Instead, we got the JC heel turn. And I gotta say, I'm disappointed. I'm not saying you should be disappointed, but I was in the moment because Toxic was a good team and one of three real women's tag teams on the entire WWE roster. And now they're just broken up just like that. This wouldn't be a problem at all if there was a full women's tag team division, but there's not. And they were one of two from NXT, the others, of course, being Katana Chance and Caden Carter, that could have been called up to the main roster and bolstered that division. Now, don't get me wrong. The moment itself was hot. JC murked Gigi, throwing her into the door and literally cracking it. Then she full-on stomped Gigi's face in a really gnarly spot. Gigi cried during and after. And there's a legitimate chance the tears were real because that shit looked like it hurt. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if she was concussed from either shot. Now, Gigi didn't protect herself on the moves. She has experience, though, independence, and she's done a lot of hardcore extreme stuff. When JC laid in the boot all the way, I would not be surprised if earlier Gigi told her, put it all on me, I'll take it, don't worry about me, like, because she's crazy, Gigi Dolan, legitimately. Um, But still, in the moment, it looked gnarly, and there's a picture of her that you can find on Twitter with a footprint on her face that is 100% real. Now, this was also, I should note, a clear reimagining of the Shawn Michaels barbershop turn on Marty Jannetty, nearly shot for shot in some aspects. And you may say, well, Silver King, why are you okay with this, but you're not okay with the potential NWO stuff that the women are doing over in AEW? The difference is that's an entire gimmick and storyline. This was a singular moment, and it was a nod to something. Also, Shawn Michaels booked it, and Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Hollywood Hogan, and Eric Bischoff are not booking over in AEW. So again, the turn was executed incredibly well. JC was great. Gigi was a beast taking those shots. The rest of the segment was also solid. But it was not as natural as some of their recent promos together. It was definitely entertaining TV, but the breakup looms over the entire thing. Now, if we don't want to completely jump off the ship, given this is developmental, maybe WWE wants to see what they can accomplish solo before bringing them back together for a future call-up. And if that's the plan, it will make a lot more sense in the long run, but we're not going to know that for some time. In the moment, it just sucks to see because, again, They were finally gelling on the mic, and it felt like a call-up was imminent for them as a sorely needed team on the main roster. And of course, everyone was fantasy booking the idea of just putting Sonya Deville with them and creating a new toxic attraction. That would have worked as well. So none of that's happening. Um, We'll see how this develops, of course, in NXT and also long-term if they ever come back together as a team. Carmelo Hayes opened NXT with Trick Williams saying Melo turned Apollo Crews and his visions into Stevie Wonder, which is a pretty good line. Melo said he's fulfilled all his promises and made good on all his guarantees, which means he only has one goal left. Except he got interrupted by J.D. McDonough. J.D. said Melo is the coolest guy on the roster, no doubt, but he doesn't match up in the ring. Then it got heated and led to a match. So we had Melo against J.D. McDonough hit a great Spanish fly. Melo came back with a fadeaway. J.D. hit a Liger bomb. Melo then popped up right into a code breaker with both laid out in the ring. Isla Dragunov entered as Melo countered Devil Inside into a pinning combination for the distraction win. Melo looked shell-shocked and ducked out of the way as Isla attacked JD and chased him through the crowd. Don't forget, JD was the one who injured Isla and gave him a kayfabe excuse to disappear, really, 
He just went back home, and I believe there might have been visa issues there as well. Now, it was unfortunate that such a good match got softened with a distraction finish, but the Dragunov return was hot, and given Mello will likely be the new champion, he probably needs to save a real match with a real finish against JD for when he actually wins the title in the future. It seems like Mello's challenge to Braun Breaker is going to go down next week. Braun is supposed to be back on the show, and now we have a top-tier main event on TV, meaning Isla, JD, or an extremely strong stand-and-deliver match coming up as well. So two big matches, four guys. That's going to be great. Really strong stuff across the board. Footage was shown of the Grayson Waller, Shawn Michaels confrontation from the media call that I was on. We played a clip of it on our Vengeance Day incident analysis. This led to a one-week suspension for Waller, but no additional follow-up from NXT. Tyler Bate later got a promo package calling out Waller for acting like a baby and disrespecting Shawn. Bate dared him to try throwing the disrespect his way next week when he returns. It was actually a strong promo from Bate, and that's going to wind up being a damn good match, Bate against Waller. There was an extended video package of Wesley's North American title defense, including him getting props in gorilla position after the match. Tony D'Angelo and Stax walked up backstage, noting they were absent from the video, and since Wesley reaped the benefits of their help, they deserve to be compensated. Wesley said he never asked for their help, and he'll have an open challenge next week. They can answer if they want. And this, I thought, fit well within all of their gimmicks. I just have no desire to see that match, and I assume someone else other than those guys will actually answer the challenge next week. We also had Odyssey Jones against Stax. Odyssey flattened Stax with like a shoulder tackle lariat. Stax flung himself over the ropes for an apron leg drop. Then he caught Jones coming back inside with a basement DDT and curb stomp using his knee for the win. Odyssey looked great here. He's moving way better than he was before his injury. Stax is also making steady improvements, but that finisher is not it. Not at all. Roxanne Perez backstage was relieved to survive her first title defense. Katana Chance and Kaden Carter walked up angry that they got screwed out of the women's tag team titles, saying no one cares and Roxanne doesn't have any friends. She said she'd prove them wrong. Now, we've seen the KCs get overly angry for no reason before, but it made no sense whatsoever for them to target Perez. Honestly, it was nonsensical. Roxy later in the parking lot revealed that her partner will be Mako Satomura. That announcement was probably the only thing that could have saved this for me. Psyched that Mako's back. This should be a banger match next week. The question is why it's happening at all, though. The Casey's were irrationally angry at the wrong person. Instead, they should have been complaining to Shawn Michaels and demanding an immediate rematch. Roxy doesn't make matches. She's the women's champion. I know their excuse was you have pull around here because you're the women's champion. She's 21. She just got the title. In what way do you think she has any pull or any more pull than you? Or again, Shawn Michaels, just go up and get your match. So it just didn't really make sense. Maybe this is a situation where... Roxy and Mako beat them, and the Casey's lose two tag team matches in a row, and then they get called up. That's a way to write them off NXT. That is certainly possible, but I don't know. We'll have to see what they do. Fallon Henley backstage, speaking of the women's tag team titles, was mad at Kiana James for cheating in their title win. She demanded they offer a rematch, and James tell Jensen about the phone call last week when all of a sudden they opened the door to an office and it turned into a surprise party. Pretty Deadly showed up all disheveled and depressed over not being champions. Chase, you walked in and got blamed, so they threw it back with a challenge to Pretty Deadly. Jensen later told Henley he has a Valentine's Day date next week with James, and that disappointed Henley. After a couple weeks of, like, okay segments, this was starting to improve. We slid right back into the really poor acting, and them as conflicted champions. Again, it's my opinion, it is not my cup of tea whatsoever. Thea Hale took exception to a Tiffany Stratton TikTok that insulted Chase U. Hale freaked out on her. She said she missed a John Cena Road to WrestleMania essay that was due. 
So Stratton tore down Chase U again, and Hale did breathing exercises that she said were taught to her from Professor Shelby and told Stratton to suck it with a DX crotch chop. Then out of nowhere, Ava Rain put her hand over Hale's mouth and dragged her away. Okay, so the schism kidnapping, obviously I can do without that. But Thea is such a delight on screen. First, her energy is unmatched. But the writing for her with the John Cena Road to WrestleMania essay and Professor Shelby referring to Dr. Shelby, the psychiatrist, fantastic stuff and just fun references for longtime fans. So we get into the match, Chase here against Pretty Deadly. PD was straight up in their bag coming out of the ring with unkempt hair, misbuttoned shirts, just looking like absolute shit, the opposite of the way they normally look. Now, nothing worked for them early in the match. Eventually, Duke Hudson ate a flying European uppercut outside. Andre Chase had a great sequence where he hit a backdrop while he was halfway into a figure four. Then he caught PD with a DDT flatliner combo. PD came back with an assisted gut buster. And as Chase was ready for the finish, Hale came down screaming and scared. She ran into Hudson's arms while grabbing her ankle. PD double-teamed Chase with spilt milk and got the win, also getting their mojo back. After the bell, Hale was shown with dark lipstick while screaming and rocking back and forth at ringside while Gallus taunted Pretty Deadly from the Crow's Nest. That's an easy title match to do before presumably sending Pretty Deadly up to the main roster. And while the whole booking with Hale was decently intriguing given it cost Chase U the match, I just enjoyed even more the one-night story of Pretty Deadly losing and then gaining their confidence back because they were able to execute a couple moves and then ultimately beat Chase U. So that was all just really well done. Uh, Sol Ruka fought Zoe Stark. Ruka did a cartwheel into an X-Factor, a front flip into a corner splash, and then a springboard swan dive blocked by double knees before Stark hit the Z360 for the win. Stark attacked after the bell, but Sol wound up on the ropes and hit Sol Snatcher to end it. This was a nice little match to let Ruka like get some working against a veteran, but the post-match was absurd. Stark had no reason to attack her and even less reason to place Ruka on the ropes where she hits her finisher from. And then she hit the finisher just to end with like a crowd pop. Let Zoe get some heat. Like Soul does not need to get over her in this moment. It really just put a bad taste in my mouth for something that otherwise was just fine. The Creed brothers were concerned about Ivy Nile after she got knocked off the ring apron last week, but a trainer cleared her for next week. Isla Dawn and Alba Fire walked up, accusing Tatum Paxley of attacking Nikita Lyons really out of nowhere. Like, why do they even care? It didn't make any sense. This led to a match with Dawn beating Paxley relatively easily after just a couple of minutes. Fire threatened her with a bat after the bell when Nile rained down with a chain to make the save. So we'll get a tag team match. Surely Fire and Dawn will beat Nile and Paxley. And then I guess eventually go after the women's tag team titles. I don't exactly know. Uh, this was so nothing. I don't even really have much of a take on it. Indu Sure got a promo package with Jinder Mahal standing between the team and leading the segment. All three of them, though, got to speak. They said they've moved on from the Creed brothers with a planned takeover of NXT ahead, and it would only end with all three of them draped in gold. It was probably the best presentation of the guys yet. I just wish they were better in the ring. And the idea of all three of them as champions, that ain't for me. Drew Gulak was pleased to see some of the ring gear designs that he asked Hank Walker to make for himself. Charlie Dempsey interrupted, saying the clothes don't matter when you lack talent. This led to a rematch between Dempsey and Walker next week. There's not much to this. It's really just time to move this storyline forward. I don't know why we keep spinning the wheel and doing the exact same thing over and over again. Lyra Valkyria fought Valentina Ferois. Electra Lopez walked down after a couple of minutes. They literally bumped heads in the ring, which Lopez used as an opening to hand Ferois brass knuckles. This time she grabbed them, but gave no indication that she was going to swing as Wendy Chu yelled for her not to, 
and Valkyria caught Feroise with an Inziguri and Roundhouse Kick for the win. This was the third move Valkyria has used to finish a match. None of them are good, and this is for someone who is strong in the ring. I just cannot believe that they can't figure out a finisher for this woman. She is so talented. A, a plain Roundhouse Kick sucks. The two high-risk moves that they tried didn't work for her. If they can figure out a finisher, then she's all set. It's the only missing piece for what she's doing. Uh, the Lopez and Feroy storyline for me is tiresome. It feels absolutely go nowhere. I know it's a low-card feud, but it just doesn't have any juice. And lastly, Daba Kato fought Dante Chen. Though Chen did get some offense, Kato dominated and won with a sit-down choke bomb. Asked after the bell why he attacked Apollo Crews, Kato said Apollo knows why he dropped his ass. The finisher looked great. Everything else was unimpressive. Uh, the short promo was actually decent, but it was just one line, so it's really tough to buy into anything. And Cruz, Cato, there is clearly a storyline there. I'm sure it's going to be that Apollo dropped him when he went to NXT, but really, how much are we ultimately going to get out of that that we can chew on and enjoy? We'll find out over the coming weeks. So that was NXT this week. Not the best follow-up show to, you know, a really B-graded uh, Vengeance Day premium live event. You would think there'd be a little bit more excitement on this episode. At the same time, it did go head-to-head -head, uh, with the State of the Union address in the second hour. It had a low rating because of it. And there was also the LeBron uh, record-breaking game. Of course, that began, I believe, after NXT was over, but perhaps it diverted a little bit of attention for the pregame. So maybe because they knew they were in competition with State of the Union and probably going to get dinged on a rating, that they saved a lot of stuff for next week. That does make some sense. But again, even with that being the case, the show certainly could have been better. Again, as AEW could have been better as well. And I think based on the breakdown, you can understand what I was saying in that the highs of NXT were not as high as AEW, but the lows certainly weren't as low either. There was nothing that happened on NXT that really made me angry and upset or that I thought was so just such, such bad, poor booking that... I was going to get frustrated and drop a sound drop or whatever the case. But at the same time, there wasn't even a single match on the show that really got me amped up. So, you know, it was kind of boring watching NXT this week. AEW was both enthralling and extremely frustrating. And sometimes that's what wrestling can be, especially when you break it down uh, with the intricacies that we do here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So I do appreciate all of you joining us for another edition of the show. Please do not forget we have a WWE episode already out this week. If you have not listened to that already, go find it. Episode 403. This, of course, is episode 404. We will be back one week from now with your next AEW and NXT show. Between now and then will be our next WWE episode coming out on Tuesday. On the way out of this show, a couple of reminders as always. First, you know what the deal is. This podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcast and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do it on Twitter. You can also email us, GettingOverPod at gmail.com. On that note, we also have advertising opportunities that can be purchased and if you happen to be interested you can inquire getting overpod at gmail.com i appreciate all of you once again listening to today's show thank you for your time and your ear holes we will be back on tuesday at this point it is time for the silver king to sign off and leave you with just three final words bye for now